Welcome back to Brain Mites. In case this is your first episode, I'm Chloe, I'm your host, and we're so happy to have you here. This is the 13th episode, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I've been working on this thing for a whole year now. Isn't that crazy? First thing I want to do is congratulate our winner for the book giveaway. Scott Quigg will be receiving a beautiful hardcover edition of The Divine Comedy. Congratulations, Scott. I hope you enjoy your journey through hell, purgatory, and paradise. I've learned that with creative freedom comes great responsibility. So allow me to give you a quick synopsis. A synopsis. <laughs> a quick synopsis of this episode so you can decide if you want to stay. First, I'm going to introduce you to what may or may not be an urban legend I found on Reddit about a strange encounter at a Missouri gas station that may be connected to a crazed vigilante faction called the Bald Knobbers. From there, I'll read two more Reddit stories about people's experiences in other eerie places that don't have bald numbers or buffer nights. Lastly, I'll tuck you into bed, kiss you on the forehead, and read you a bedtime story about the fetid Mapangari, an Amazonian shaman cryptid who was said to have discovered the key to immortality, which the gods deemed to be a majorly punishable fucky-wucky. Still here? Sick. Let's talk about the remote gas station encounter three young men had in southern Missouri, and how it led me down a dark and mysterious path to the roots of a faction named the Bald Knobbers. To preface the following segments, I was researching eerie places. I hope you don't mind a well-placed tangent here and there. This story takes place in the mid-90s, a time before widely used cell phones and GPS. My two best friends and I, freshly able to drive, decided we would head out on a Saturday to a water park in southern Missouri, about a three-hour drive from our hometown in northwest Arkansas. We had never been before and just used road maps to get there. We had a pretty fantastic time, but as the sun started to reach the tree line, we thought we ought to head home. It's about 7 o'clock and we miss a turn, but my friend Paul, who was navigating, said not to worry. Another turn was coming up that would get us there just as fast. The next turn took us from detoured to completely lost. By 8 o'clock, we were on a road that seemed to be lacking in formative road signs and had zero lights. We finally see a gas station and are relieved to get some directions as well as some gas. My friend Taylor and I go inside while Paul pumps the gas. We come inside and a very friendly old man in his early 60s who gives us a very large grin and says, Well, hello there! It was very Foghorn Leghorn-esque. Looked like an extreme hillbilly, but very pleasant. We explained that we were needing gas and wanted to fill up. He explained that he was about to shut down for the night, but would be happy to oblige us. He then said something I'll never forget. You have to make haste though, tonight's buffer night. Taylor and I looked at each other and shared an awkward look. We asked him if he could point out our location on the roadmap. While he was finding it, two people entered the shop from the back and called out for the old man. He said he was up front. The two approached us, a man and a woman, and at first looked confused, then as though hit with an epiphany, they smiled. They asked the old man, are these the guests tonight? He shot them a look and said, no, these are some lost children. The way he said children caused the hairs on my neck to stand up. Not sure why. They looked at us and said, the three of you should make haste because tonight's buffer night. Two things scared the shit out of me right then. The first being how did they know about Paul pumping gas out front when they came from the back? And second being that they repeated the old man verbatim. 
We clarified the directions to get back on the main highway and paid for the gas without waiting for change. Taylor and I booked it out of the gas station to find Paul already in the passenger seat. When we got into the car, we were nearly airborne from the speed we took off. Before we could say anything, Paul told us about how three men from across the street stood under a tree just watching him. He waved, but they didn't move a muscle. We drove as fast as we could until we got back to the highway. To this day, I will still have a nightmare every so often about that gas station and what my imagination has twisted Buffer Night into being. After reading this story, I was left with a mystery. What is Buffer Night? Or what was Buffer Night? So I googled it. Buffer Night remains obscured in the annals of time, but from what I've read, it's linked to a period of violent uprisings and vigilante justice during the Civil War, brought about by a faction called the Bald Knoppers. The phenomenon is vague and shrouded in mystery, but from what I've deduced, it's a night for the Bald Knoppers to exact revenge on defiant citizens unwilling to adhere to the faction's controversial sense of law and order. Essentially, I think. It was a purge they carried out on a given night they deemed to be Buffer Night. So how did the Bald Knobbers come into existence? In post-Civil War era Southern Missouri, an ardent lawman named Nathaniel N. Kinney became dissatisfied with law enforcement, so he decided to aggrandize himself and assert his authority by forming the notorious vigilante committee known as Bald Knobbers. The Bald Knobbers were originally a group with good intentions, but as with all things that rely on self-governance, the group quickly turned to feral. If there's anything I've learned from reading James Madison's Federalist Papers, it's that an ungoverned government has the tendency to violate the rights of individuals and minorities. This is why vigilante groups sound great, but always end up creating a shitstorm of violence and chaos that is hard to remedy. Due to the degree of violence being displayed by the group, several founding members disbanded, but still the group continued to grow. The committee group experienced rapid growth, boasting up to a thousand members at its height. The community began to divide into opposing factions, the Bald Knobbers and the Anti-Bald Knobbers. Kinney's group sought to purge the community of lowlifes, such as drunks, gamblers, and loose women. Mm. They frightened couples living in sin, I'll put that in quotations too, and men who failed to support their families. Sometimes they even called on those they considered ornery. They would flog and brand their victims, hang or beat men to death for assault, disturbing the peace or destroying property. They would whip people in church for disrupting sermons or voting for the wrong candidate during elections. The Bald Knobber's unchecked power also allowed group members to start extorting money and land from community members. The harshest punishments were reserved for those who spoke ill of the Bald Knobbers. Victims who resisted the group were oftentimes found beaten to death in the woods or disappeared altogether. The nation's newspapers published stories about the bloody war in Missouri, and the Bald Knobbers were described as the nation's largest and fiercest vigilante movement. In 1887, the Bald Knobbers killed William Edens and Charlie Green, both of whom had been critical to the group, and seriously injured several members of their families. This brought a further outcry from the nation's newspapers. 20 bald knobbers were arrested, and most received light sentences ranging from fines to short prison terms. However, four were sentenced to death. On August 20, 1888, Nat Kinney was shot and killed by Billy Miles, a member of the anti-bald knobbers, in a planned assassination. 
Though Miles was tried for Kenny's murder, he was found not guilty based on self-defense. Though the violence continued for a short time, by 1899, the era of the Bald Knobbers had run its course. This should have been the end of the Bald Knobbers and the mystery of Buffer Knight, right? Well then, what happened to Ebby Stepik in 2015 and why is her murder connected to the enigmatic Buffer Knight? Ebby was born on March 31st, 1997 and lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. When her senior year began at Little Rock Central High School, she decided she would move out from her parents' home and stay with her friends or grandparents. This was Ebby's first year at public high school as earlier she was enrolled in a private school. On October 23rd, 2015, she attended a party and the next day she went to her mother's house. At her mother's house, she told her stepfather that four men GR'd her. If you don't know what GR means, I'm not explaining it at the party, and she wanted to take action. She also claimed that there was proof to this, and that it was recorded on a cell phone. Later the same day, when her mother and stepfather tried to call her, they could not reach her cell. Her cell phone records stated that she texted the four men, threatening them and stating that she would go to the police and file a report. On the same day, her last call was to her brother, Trevor, who says that she sounded uncomfortable and perplexed. Trevor states Ebby told him she was outside his house, but in reality, she wasn't. When he called her again, she said that she was not aware of where she was and sounded disrupted. This was the last time she was found in touch with anyone. Two days later, her car was found at Chalamont Park with the gas tank empty, the key still in the ignition, and a dead car battery. There was no lead on where she was or where her body was for two years, despite her family offering $50,000 to the individual who can find her. The four men had also said that there was no video. The morning of May 24th, 2018, the police had found human remains 60 meters from where her car was in a drainage pipe. Whoever wrote this article did a really fucking terrible job, just saying. <sighs> The morning of May 24th, 2018, the police had found human remains in a drainage pipe 60 meters from where her car was. Upon investigating it, it was discovered that it was Ebby Stepik's remains. And they had been there for the past three years. This case was eventually ruled as a homicide. This event shows up online when you search for Buffer Nights, Arkansas. Do you think Ebby's murder was the result of a buffer night by a self-proclaimed group of neo-bald knobbers? If you want to join me in the lounge and talk about it, I have a Brain Mites Reddit page set up and you can let me know what you think there. You know, about this mystery and the bald knobbers and what you think buffer night is and what you think happened to Ebby. Now that you're nice and riled up, let's calm back down with some run-of-the-mill, non-violent, what-the-fuck stories I found on Reddit. This story is about a brother and sister who find something mysterious in the forest. When my brother and I were 10 and 12 respectively, our family went on a hike through the cemetery and into the woods not far from our house. My brothers and I would explore these woods every day, even camped in them before, we knew it like the back of our hands. Anyway, as the family hits our usual spot by the creek halfway through, Brother One and I said we'd be back in a few. We wanted to wander off further up the creek, so we did. We came across a very large hill we had never seen before. It was littered with what looked like someone's worldly possessions. As if they turned the house upside down, shook out the contents, took the house, and left. There were tons of painted X's on the trees, showing someone intended to cut them down at some point. 
We poked around for a few when we thought we had heard mom hollering at us, so we turned tail and walked maybe 20 feet back down the hill to where our parents were. The entire encounter was maybe 45 minutes long, on our end. As soon as our mom saw us, we got the beating of a lifetime. We had actually been gone almost four hours. She never saw us walk up any hill, and remembering seeing us meandering down the straight path by the creek, not turning up a hill that was 20 feet away. She and her husband and our brother combed the woods for over four hours, screaming our names and couldn't find hide nor tail of us. We pleaded our case and even tried showing her the hill. Surely she was messing with us. So we stomped up to the turn off for the hill and it was gone. Nowhere to be seen. For years, we explored the woods, determined to find that fucking hill. We covered miles and miles of off-path woods. As we got older, we mapped it out. To this day, that hill does not exist. We never found it again. Never found the weird furniture, toys, clothes, and other household items that were scattered across the hill. And never met anyone in the area that had a clue about the hill. We probably just wandered away further than we meant, but... Uh, I always found it weird that we never found the hill again. I can't help but think this is one of those moments where an interdimensional doorway was opened without causation and they just happened to walk through it and walk back out the way they came. Imagine if a door closed on them though and they had to live in their existence they accidentally entered. I'm a firm believer that things spawn into our universe without causation. I had what I assume is an interdimensional experience driving home to see my mom one time. I passed the city limits sign of this tiny little town called Jonesboro. I always remembered Jonesboro because it's the first town I would reach in the yay I'm finally under an hour from home. <laughs> well, what I haven't told you and what I didn't think much of in the moment was that there was this exceptionally noticeable heat wave on my way into Jonesboro just before reaching city limits. It was hot that day and I live in Texas so heat waves are usually visible. I have to say this one did look a little different though. It was like a rippling wall, almost like a mirage. So anyway, I pass through Jonesboro and I'm driving and driving and driving and I'm starting to wonder why I haven't made it to Hamilton yet. The time span was not adding up. Not but a few moments later, after I'm starting to get agitated, I pass the Jonesboro city limits sign. When I tell you I felt ice cold, I mean it. I was exhausted and upset and I couldn't wait to get home, which took another 45 minutes in which I rode silently home in a state of absolute butthole pucker. So yeah, I believe in wormholes or glitches in the matrix, interdimensional existences, whatever it is. All of these descriptors are just nomenclatures for what we don't understand and in this lifetime probably never will. This next story airs on the side of supernatural, but still fits the bill for interdimensional travel in my opinion. By my hometown, there was a hiking trail that people went to very infrequently. It was along the side of the Niagara Encarpment, so it had some climbable cliffs and some very shallow clay caves that you could crawl around on. I went with some friends when I was 19 or 20, and we were crawling around and found a cave that went pretty deep. We had never been in there before, had never seen it before. So we pushed forward and decided to check it out even though we had no flashlights, and this was when cell phones didn't really have a flashlight function. We stepped into the cave and it was easily 20 to 30 degrees cooler than outside. 
Upon looking around inside the cave, we noticed it was really clean. There weren't any beer cans littered everywhere like in other small caves. While in there, we got a really eerie feeling, hearing weird and strange things, feeling like we were being touched, poked, and pulled, and not having any way to figure out who was doing it because it was too dark. We were just using lighters to see what was around us. We were convinced one of us was messing with the others, although anytime we sparked up a lighter, we were all decently far apart. We decided to hightail out of there after only a few minutes, convinced to come back with flashlights one day. We came out to see that it was now dusk outside. When we entered, it was midday. Somehow, we had lost roughly three hours inside of this cave. We went back with flashlights the next week, but have never been able to find this cave again. The Redditor who wrote this has bad grammar. <laughs> okay, that aside, the Redditor who wrote this has bad grammar. <laughs> the Redditor who wrote about this location also said the place is located in Wisconsin, Oakfield Ledge, if we want to check it out. This story is so reminiscent of the movie As Above, So Below to me, which was, <laughs> it was weirdly a comfort movie for me, don't ask why. Well, because I don't have an answer. What's more exciting than journeying to purgatory or hell to find the sorcerer's stone? Harry Potter got the easy timeline in my opinion. The stone was in his pocket all along. Scarlet had to swim through Hep B hemoglobin and punch a brimstone wraith in the face to get hers. So what do we think, people? Does the cave exist and it's just very well hidden and was discovered by happenstance? Or was the cave actually a chasm into an evil hell-like spirit realm? Let me know what you think in my Reddit lounge. You know my subreddit, r slash podcast. That's the one! Now that I have you here and you're comfortable, I want to spend the rest of the episode recounting an interesting cryptozoology report about the fetid Mappingari. The person who wrote the post in the cryptozoology reddit is scholarly and deserving of all the praise. Their username is u forward slash crofter no2 as in number two. Normally I would rewrite information to fit my narrative style, but there's no way I can compete with the eloquence of what has already been written and cited for bonus points. So I'm just gonna read it to you as is. Hi everyone, it's future me. And I have bad news. I girl bossed too close to the sun and discovered that I am not smart enough to read the terminology in that story. I do not know any Portuguese and <laughs> I unfortunately do not have a good enough Spanish accent to pronounce the names and I felt like I was being disrespectful. So respectfully, I will be coming up with my own Mapengari information. So just hold tight, we'll get that going in a minute. I will say though, I do not regret reading that story. I learned a lot, I'm just not willing to reiterate what I learned because I can't pronounce the words. Mapengari, fearsome beast and protector of the Amazon. Deep within the Amazon rainforest, a mysterious creature called the Mapangari, notoriously elusive, this cave-dwelling giant leaves a trail of broken trees and trampled ferns in its wake. Massive, hairy, and pungent, this beast protects the South American jungle from human threats. I just learned I've been pronouncing 
Mapinguari wrong this entire time. It's not Mapinguari, it's Mapinguari. Why did I even pick this cryptid? I'm obviously just on a downward slope. Good news, I found an actual folktale excerpt, excerpt to read. I'm so excited. So let's let's just read this one. This one doesn't have any big weird, not weird words, but just big unpronounceable to me words. My search for folktales took me to other places in the Amazon basin. In Brazilian towns along the Amazon and Yavari rivers, I learned about the Mapinguari. Mapinguari. That's gonna be hard to correct. This animal protector is a hairy beast with one eye, a feature introduced most likely by Europeans out of Greek mythology. According to Maria Bezerra, a woman who made her living by running a food stand for boatmen, passengers, street vendors, and alongshoremen unloading lumber boats, the Mapinguari is very dangerous to stubborn hunters. I heard more stories about the Mapinguari while staying in the hut of Don Luis da Silva, an old hunter who hadn't been out lately because of new regulations and advancing blindness. Near Tefe, on the banks of the Amazon River in Brazil, there was a man who loved hunting so much that he went almost every day of the year. One Sunday, he told his wife, I'm going to a place where the hunting is good. It would be better to wait until tomorrow, his wife said. It's not good to hunt on Sunday. No domingo tambien se come. One must also eat on Sundays, the man said as he grabbed his rifle and left. I'm so sorry if I said that weirdly. I'm trying my best. On his way to the forest, the man stopped by a neighbor's house to invite him. The neighbor didn't want to go and also told him it's not good to hunt on Sundays. The hunter persuaded his neighbor by saying, No domingo tambien se come. One must also eat on Sundays. The two men crossed a small river and walked for some time through the bush without finding anything. It was as if all the animals had disappeared. Toward the end of the afternoon, the men were frightened by some terrifying screams followed by noise and footsteps. At first, they thought it was a big man, but when it came closer, they saw that it was an animal. A black-haired, ape-like creature with a turtle shell and one big green eye in the middle of its forehead. The men were terrified. The hunter started to shoot, but the bullets could not penetrate the beast's shell. He kept shooting, but to no avail. The animal walked toward the hunter, grabbed him, and threw him to the ground with one of its enormous arms. The other man climbed a tree and watched in horror as the animal tore apart his friend. As it gnawed his friend's arm, it said, No domingo tambien se come. One must also eat on Sundays. Then, gnawing a leg, it repeated, No domingo tambien se come. One must also eat on Sundays. After the creature devoured the hunter and walked away yawning, the man who survived ran to town and gave an account of his friend's death. Some people tried to guess what kind of animal could have eaten the hunter. If it has only one green eye and its feet are as big as a pestle, the creature must be a Mapinguari, said the dead hunter's cousin. Surely it didn't eat you, Don Luis, because you didn't have a rifle, added the others. One of the men who knew a great deal about that sort of thing said the hunter could have saved his life if he had shot the creature in its belly button, because that is where the heart is. The people from the town were so outraged that they organized a search party and went hunting for the creature. They didn't have to look too hard, because the Mapinguari had come back to lick and chew on the bones of the hunter. As soon as it saw the group of men, the beast attacked. It wanted to eat them, too. 
The men fired, not as their friend had done, but straight into its belly button to hit its heart. Shrieking with rage, the Mapanguari took off running and disappeared into the forest. The men gathered the uneaten bones of the hunter, put them in a sack, and took them back to town. His wife put the bones in a small coffin, and after she and her children mourned him for two nights, she took them to the cemetery. If only he had heeded my warning, sobbed the poor widow. The Mapanguari, also known as Capelobo, is a terrifying supernatural creature with physical features similar to the Cyclops of Greek mythology. Stories about this monster, considered to be one of the animal protectors in the Brazilian Amazon, also reveal the influence of Christian beliefs in the observance of the Sabbath as a day of rest. In other varieties of this tale, the Mapanguari is represented as having a foul smell, a giant mouth on its stomach, and feet pointing backwards. Reading stories like these make me believe anything and everything in the world is possible and that we really are living in the 10th dimension, we just can't fathom it. Does anyone else think it's strange that nearly all mythical creatures have similar doppelgangers from across the globe? Bigfoot here, Yeti there, depictions of dragons carved into the boats of Vikings who hadn't yet discovered China, the Lady in White, La Llorena. There are too many coincidences for me not to believe in fairy tales. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted. Hours upon hours go into these episodes. I've decided to do short stories lists often at a friend's recommendation. They were worried about me burning out by forcing myself to produce a new short story every two weeks, and I agree with them. With college starting, I really need to cut myself some much needed slack on my passion projects. But as always, I really appreciate you listening. I hope that this content is good enough without my short stories, but I promise the next podcast will have a short story in it. So anyway, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode, and that's all I got for you. Bye!